1: Welcome to Counter Charge. I'm
0: Tom Annis. I'm Alex Coos.
2: And I'm Jeremy Duval. You know, I'm really excited. Uh, we have a great show for you guys today. We have um, the man, the myth, the legend, the spymaster, dojo's everyman, handsome Tom Annis on the show today. Um, we have uh, Alex Coos, master of the Lost Episodes which uh, will or will not ever be edited and given out to you guys. But how are you guys doing today?
1: Doing great. great. Yeah, great. Thanks for having us, Tom.
2: Awesome. Okay, so what we're going to talk about today, we got a bunch of juicy, really fun topics to talk about. We are going to do a little brief hobby update. We haven't had Tom on in a while, so I'm curious to hear, has he burned his Revenant cab, yes or no? We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll find out during the hobby update. We'll talk a little bit about Alex, see what Alex is up to. Um, uh We're going to talk a little bit briefly about the Alamo, which was a GT Tom and I went to at the beginning of November. And then we're going to wrap up the show with a little bit of Call to Arms check-in. We're going to talk to Alex and Tom about how their Call to Arms games have been through the sort of the first half of Call to Arms. And then we're going to kind of use that as a springboard to talk a little bit about... Halpy's Rift and where we think the meta is now you know we haven't had a lot of in-person tournaments obviously but UB is uh, cracking. people are sending lists back and forth all the uh, faction pages are are uh, riled up with lots of different talks so we're going to kind of just touch base on these two great competitive minds and awesome haircuts and figure out what um, what people think about the meta so first off let's do a little hobby roundtable um, Tom what have you been up to hobby wise since Alamo?
1: Yeah, burning my red calf. <laughs> no, um, so I have a possibly GT coming up in the early months of next year. Although with how things are going, who knows? Uh, but that GT is a 1995 uh, points level, and it's called King of the Monsters. And so, kind of the the special character, as many tournaments have, uh, is themed around Godzilla. So you could take Godzilla, you could take Mothra, uh, Rodin. Ghidorah, all those all those uh, Godzilla monsters, and they all have stats that the TO um, has given them. And so I've been kind of trying to decide what I, I want to bring to that. I think I'll put the Undead back on the back burner for just a little bit, just because I've been playing them most of the year, and I'm feeling the the urge to get my Vaseline slash Brother Mark back out. And my thinking is, you know, it's a... The tournament's all about killing monsters, so who's better at killing monsters than the Brother Mark? And so what I've been doing is kind of touching up my Baselanes, which I haven't really played since Masters in February. They had a little damage from the travel, so I've just been preparing those just in the off chance that the GT goes forward uh, next year. And so that's, that's what I've been doing hobby-hobby-wise, I mean, I've... I've been doing a lot of uh, non painting, modeling, hobby stuff. I mean, I'm running the Call of Arms tournament along with a couple other guys. Uh, I've been running for Dash 28 not too long ago. I was, I was on Countercharge Journalist Builder Studio. So I'm keeping pretty busy in, in the hobby, uh, broadly speaking.
2: And I always talk about that right on the show before. Like uh, the podcast for me, I still consider like my hobby, right? So if I'm getting my hour a day in, whether it's painting or editing or recording, it's still uh, within that umbrella right of what we do to energize and keep our hobby going um so has that been like fulfilling to you sort of uh it's nice to see you know you're my buddy and i like you a lot and uh, a great player and everything but it's nice to see you uh, you take a little bit more active role in the community, you know, with the articles and sort of the spy master is almost like you got to trademark that stuff. You got to go, you got to pat, got patent it. Is, is is that fulfilling to you along with the hobby, but actually starting to become sort of a part of the community? Yeah, it is, and I
1: think you know I I have somewhat of a unique perspective this year as as someone in a region who's actually had two in person tournaments now, um, as well as participating in UB all all the UB events. And so I kind of feel like I I'm still actively engaged with with the meta, you know what's good, what what are people taking? I'm interested in that anyway, uh, hence the the spy master moniker. But yeah, I, I kind of felt like I needed to step up during this time because I did have that experience that a lot of other people didn't. And so I'm I've always had my opinions, but I'm sharing my opinions more
2: often. Yeah, and that's cool. I mean, the more people we can have creating content, uh, the better I think, especially for kings of war being like we've it's often been talked to sometimes like a niche within a niche in that it's like fantasy rank and flank gaming which is not huge but uh so i've been enjoying your stuff i like to have been uh, keep up the articles you know great job what about you alex i know that you were really excited uh, doing like the secret santa project stuff um what have you been up to hobby wise yeah so this summer
3: like i had gotta do a little bit of a hobby funk so this fall early winter i guess has been about re- re-energizing my hobby mojo so like i've been doing going through my old infinity stuff that's been on the shelf so still kind of plugging away on that as well as the undead army which is now potentially a league of rordia army which we'll get to when we talk about called arms later like mm-hmm. and uh <laughs> My uh, quote-unquote foot guard project continues. Footnotes uh, knights quote-unquote. Yes. (laughs) So, but yeah, the the secret Santa that Billy organized, I was a little nervous about at first because I'm, you know, I'm not the world's greatest painter, but and I kind of have stuck to like what I know. Like with rats, was just like you know fur and like green glowing things, and then you know foot knights are just like you know armor and a bit of cloth, but so i was a little nervous about what i would get got a really cool uh, opportunity with my the person i was paired up with so i was really excited and like i found some really cool 3d miniatures that i got amen my uh, local guy to print up i got part of it done this weekend and it turned out really really well i think for me anyway and the second part i'm going to paint up this week and send out so i'm pretty excited about that and it's been a really good way to push myself Painting-wise, like getting me to do, you know, things that paint miniatures that I wouldn't ever include in any of my armies, you know, pat color palettes that, you know, aren't my normal. So it's been a great opportunity to like re-energize and like push my painting, which I, you know, it's like stressful things are usually good in the end. It's like I was worried and now I'm actually pretty excited. And just a couple of people have uh, been posting videos and pics of the ones they've received, so it's like it's going to be really awesome kind of community building experience as everyone receives them in the mail and starts posting the pictures on the counter charge page so i think i'm really looking forward to seeing what everyone
2: gets yeah you know really really cool idea from billy and the gang i know i was on after dark and and uh dino lord kyle was working on his uh secret santa project so i know a lot of people really um gotten into that idea and it's like a cool idea you know sometimes it's good when you have a uh, trying to clear the log jam of a hobby slump to just take yourself completely out of your project zone of what you're working on and just do like a one-off or do some com- some something completely different i know we've been talking some on the after dark facebook messenger thread i know kyle Pressel twinkie was kind of talking about ways to sort of get re re-motivated in a hobby and that was a lot of great suggestions Um, from different people like Greg from Unplugged talking about you know picking up something new and maybe uh, doing something different or not doing it to your most if you paint it 100% doing like an 85% project or like a 75% project where you allow yourself not to you know do everything the way you normally do give you some freedom to experiment
3: exactly I think and or one of Greg's other suggestions I think was neat where it's like tie painting to something you enjoy so like if you have a show you like to watch or music you like to listen to only let yourself do that while you're painting (laughs) kind of gets you like motivated to do what you want, but then ties it to something like the, the painting, which you're having trouble like getting yourself around to doing.
2: I know that's a great idea. And I know that some people who, who don't take part in after dark, like I know Jeff Swan and some other people have said this in the past. It's because when they do paint, they like to listen to podcasts or watch TV or, or, do something where they're not having to talk really. So mm-hmm. I think that after dark has been a really a great thing to uh, promote painting and community building, but there is the other side of that coin that sometimes it's easy to just sort of pick up a model, put your headphones on and just veg out, you know what I mean? And just not even have to worry about maintaining a conversation and just kind of flow into a project. Yeah. So, I think
3: it depends on like what your day is like or day to day is like, like I know if I'm, you know seeing people all day long in and out of my office uh, when I get home sometimes it's just like I just want to zone out and like not have to talk with people but then other days it's like you do want to have like five or six people to talk to while you're painting through like 20 foot nights or something like that like, but the community's there to support you either way
2: Definitely. There's no, as we talk about this a lot, there's no right or wrong way to do a lot of the stuff in our hobby. A lot of it's just finding what works for you. So I found sometimes like a mixture where I'll go on After Dark, but let's say like Hillary is watching a show or she's playing her on her computer or whatever. Sometimes I'll just paint and we'll hang out and chat and stuff while I'm painting. So I think that it's like, it's good to have a variety as a spice of life, right? And in the end, whatever you can do to just get that time in, you know what I mean? Get those hours in every day or hour in every day. Next thing you know, you'll have stuff to show for it. So I've been continuing to work on after uh, finishing my Dragon for Alamo, the event we'll talk about shortly. I had really pushed myself as hard as possible on that model. So I really wanted to kind of take a step back. And I would mentioned it on the show before where Jake Cherpika and I had talked a lot about um, what you can learn from doing a speed painting project in that finding what are things that take a lot of time that don't necessarily net you a lot in return and so learning where can i not cut cor- i hate to use the term cut corners right but where can i uh, those extra layers don't really matter except in my mind you know learning where you try to you know shave some time off so i started the hellboy project and my goal was to not spend more than two hours per miniature, you I know, mean, maybe a little longer on Hellboy himself or whatever, but try to keep it in the one to three hour range per model. And then Hillary was painting all the, um, so the game has some like big characters, it has your, your heroes, and then it has sort of like your mutation dudes that are just like your enemies of the line, like all, there's a bunch of them and they're like the fodder that you fight. So Hillary's been painting all those and then I've been painting like all the monsters and characters so we've made really good progress we only have we did hellboy we did all the big monsters we did like the wizard we've done all like the small dudes so really there's only two more of the player characters left to finish uh and then we're completely done with that so i'm really excited um once uh we get through lockdown and we're able to go back to a sort of a, like our extended social bubble which includes some some neighbors of ours who we play board games with sometimes uh we're excited to play that and it will be like my first I've always painted models, but I've never really done a lot of board game painting per se that, with miniatures. So I'm really excited to play it with all the models painted. So I'll put a picture up on the on the Facebook page once everything's done. I'll take a picture of the whole set together so you guys can see the Hellboy base starter board game, which has really gotten great reviews. Like I said, we haven't played it yet, um, but it's gotten a lot of really great reviews. So I'm I'm excited to try it. And um, I think it will be interesting because Hillary's gotten into painting miniatures a little bit, but she's yet to play. She loves board games. We play board games all the time, but she hasn't played a game yet with a model that she painted. And so, you know, it's there's that magic, right? When you play a miniatures game with models, who cares how well they're painted, but it's stuff that you painted. Right. What do you think, guys? There's like a a magic sauce when you play a game for the first time with stuff that you did.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think uh painting board game miniatures is a really good way to break up uh army painting cuz like army painting can get to get to be a bit of a slog especially near the end after at the end of a project and with a board game it's like you have a finite you know smaller more varied set of miniatures so it kind of keeps it a little more interesting and you're not you're not worried about paint judging or anything like that you're just like I just want to get this to look cool on the table with my friends so and it's something you're sharing so I think that's I think it's a really good way to like break that up but playing board games with painted miniatures is like that's next level which is like everyone if you have friends who come over most people don't have painted miniatures for board games so i think it's it kind of like makes it a little more interesting
2: and like i'm doing them at maybe 70 percent, like my fullest whatever but jake was joking like 70% of like your full hobby on board game miniatures is like they're painted by Leonardo da Vinci, right? (laughs) Because how many people, like you said, Alex, how many people don't even play with painted miniatures with board games, the majority of them. So the fact that they're painted at all, but I think you're exactly right. It's been a real blessing for me to have this sort of big palette cleanser. And it, it does have me motivated on my next Kings of War project or whatever, my next big army project, just taking a break and being like, okay, This board game has X amount of miniatures, it's got some basic guys, it has a couple of cool heroes, it's got one or two big monsters that I can do little funky stuff on, and then that's it, and then it's done. And then forever, no matter how many times we play that board game, it will be completely painted and done. Uh, That's been a real, it's been just a really super fun project. So like I said, only a couple left for those, and then... um, Probably after that, I will, before I start my next full army, I'll probably go, you know, work work on a couple little bit more things I have for the Basileans, the Basalians, but they're uh, very close. (laughs) Very close.
1: I do do not accept that pronunciation, by the Uh way. That that is heresy to me.
2: Yeah. Not my army. Not my army's name. Totally unacceptable. i hear you It's your it's your right to have those feelings and i uh respect and give you the space to feel what you need to feel right now so uh, (laughs) thank you for your feedback tom yeah i appreciate the feedback (laughs) Uh, i've never got to weigh in on that
1: but i was horrified by that pronunciation just letting everybody know
2: i will say though that i don't know have you read or listened to that yet tom step still deliverance
1: I've read it. Yeah, I don't. I haven't listened
2: to it. Okay, so I, I'm listening to it. I'm almost done, and he does actually does a really good job. Uh, it's difficult, I think, to step into a fantasy world where uh, there isn't a. Ba- I mean, I think when you have a fantasy world that is not as much background is both good and bad, right? Because one, you don't really have as much of a foundation to go off of, but two, it allows you some creative freedom. I've enjoyed it. It's like a, a, a very solid, if you just want like a solid Kings of War story about, and you, you like Baselians, um definitely uh, a good choice. And I've enjoyed the art audiobook very much, so.
1: Yeah, now that I'm not going to be working from home as much, I'll have a, a pretty good commute to listen to some of that on audiobook. so I'm looking forward to it.
2: Hasn't that been interesting, though? I'm, I'm a hybrid schedule now, where I work from home Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and I commute Uh, and I work in the office on Tuesday, Thursday, which to me is is like a perfect schedule. Like, I'm hoping that even after uh, post-COVID, our county, I work in county government, The county has found so many great things to come out of working virtually. They've been able to get rid of certain um, leases. They've cut costs. They've had to cut costs due to COVID budget shortfalls. But they found Mm -hmm. some some real uh, positives of uh, people working virtually. So I'm thinking that even when we go back to normal operations, I'll still probably be able to work like a virtual or a half and half schedule, which for me, I, I commute maybe an hour to work. Uh, 45 minutes to an hour, depending on traffic and not being able to not having to drive home on a Friday is amazing, because that's when I can get stuck for an hour and a half. So yeah.
1: yeah.
2: But because I haven't been driving as much. Um, my podcast and audiobooks uh queue is like massive, because I'm just not in my car. I'm not in my car as much. But I've been trying to walk more. So I just bring my headphones and try to listen to that stuff when I'm like, out and about walking. But I hear you. When you're not in the car, you're you, you don't, you're not in your oasis to listen yeah. to whatever you want. All right, right. Exactly. Well, and the next on the, the docket for me probably will be, um, okay, this is so weird. So Armada came out, right? I'm excited. I love war, I love ship combat. So my local game store was not going to be carrying Armada. So I was like, well, I want to buy from a local game store, even if it's not my local game store. Uh, let me support a local game store that's uh, been a real a champion for the hobby. So I chose to buy all my stuff from the War Room Hobbies, which is Rob's local uh, hobby shop in Memphis, and uh, they've been. And, uh, their owner Horner has been on the show before. Super great guy, was really uh, great customer service. He took my order and he take he took Mark's order, because um, I thought then at least if I'm not uh, helping my local store, I'm helping a local store. Well, Armada came in. And they took all our orders to the post office, I think, on the 24th, so Thanksgiving week, something like that, after I had come out. And it's still waiting to be shipped from the—and he paid priority mail, too. And it's still waiting to be shipped from the Memphis post office. It's just sitting there. (laughs) And the post, I know it's crazy. And he's talked to the post office manager, and the manager's like, Well, we're going to get to it as soon as possible. And then they like hung up on him or something. It's just crazy. So it's like you check the tracking, and it still hasn't shipped. And it's priority mail that's now been sitting there for 10 days. So. I don't have my armada yet, but I know that's not his fault. He's doing the best he can. You know, I mean, what can you do? The post office is the post office. It's like you can't go down there and be like, do this. You know, they're gonna do what they're gonna do. It's just I've never heard of that in my life. I, and I've shipped stuff through post office. I mean, I've been doing eBay for years, and I've never like seen a. Oh, I'll pay you for priority mail, but you don't have to ship it for ten days. So I just can't wrap my mind around it.
3: That happened. I was selling off some uh, old. Warhammer stuff last week and just sending it to a guy in Montreal and like paid for two day shipping and it got to Montreal like you could find on the tracking and then it got shipped shipped back to Saskatchewan. So like the opposite direction in the middle of Canada after it already got to Montreal. Now it's like on its way back to Montreal this week. See, that's weird.
2: I think there's a lot of stuff that the, the pandemic has caused that isn't for us. Like, it's all the back-end stuff, right? Like, production, our clothes, all the little things that you don't realize that have been so affected by everything that's gone on that we don't see maybe in our daily, everyday lives, but in the back-end or in the infrastructure of things, things are totally out of whack. So, but, I mean, it's not his fault, again, like I said, but it is a bummer because I am excited to paint that stuff because I I was going to do a similar, like, experiment with you know contrast i was going to take like my board game contrast and, and and go and see what i could do if i move up less like 5% take a little extra time maybe on the sales or, or the basing or whatever but um, it's still on my to do list to get the armada stuff and uh, get to working on that so Anything on, on on moving, you know, hobby wise, looking forward into the future, Tom? Um, what do you uh, see yourself working on in the first half of next year? Any any future army projects, or what are you thinking about hobby wise?
3: Uh,
1: painting six four shamblers and a tree herder.
2: Mm-hmm. Makes <laughs> sense. <laughs> no,
1: I'm kidding. Yeah, I was going to say, ahead. allies are no problem, so that's okay. Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, nine, 95% of the armies wouldn't want those.
3: Well, that and his Absolutely, anyway. it makes no sense. Why would you? How could he improve on any army? <laughs> uh, no, I think I'm just going to be expanding my undead.
1: Uh, a couple of different unit types: some zombies, some ghouls. Uh, one of the good things about undead is just it has so many options, so many different playstyles you could do within the army. So I'm going to expand so I can start playing different types of lists than what I have been playing most of this year. So I think that's, that's where I'm going to go next.
2: It's always good to round out, you know, give yourself some options. We always talk about that. Like when you build a list and you get it painted, it's always good. Even though no, no matter how much you want to like do something else to go ahead and give yourself a couple more options. But what about you, Alex, Uh, beginning part of next year? Do you have an idea of what your, your next army or your next, next army is going to be? I think, um,
3: speaking of my next next army i think i'm actually going to be working on that because um, i had been working on my uh my parry foot knights all summer as a a soul reaver infantry kind of option to pair up with uh, my mercia raven men as whites but the the plan was always that they'd be humans and i could use them in basileia or kingdoms of men or league of rhodia and uh, lately i've been kind of really enjoying League of Rordia so I think I'm going to lean into that in the new year I have some old Thunderwolves that I was using as a stampede back when the herd could take those which I might repurpose as my honor guard mounts for uh the knights and then kind of go from there and just kind of really lean into the a fantastical version of you know 15th century English army and just kind of go with that. I found some good you know, historical cannons and organ guns. And I found out with my, during my research that that's roughly the time period of warfare where those guns started being used in pitched battles. So I, the history nerd in me feels okay about including them. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's kind of the, the next uh, phase. I think I'm going to actually like, lean into the Kingdoms of Men legal of Rordia aspect with this army. And then maybe... For I, I don't think I'm going to abandon undead, but I, I think I might take a different spin on them than I was initially going to. And kind of there's the new Patreon for Asgard Rising, which is kind of like a Viking-themed undead like uh, 3D printing option, which I might use with uh, with Amon, since uh, I feel like those tie into the the raven men that I got from Mersha and the. And those monsters a little better. So I can kind of go with that because they're a little bit more Viking era anyway. So kind of split the undead and the Kingdoms of Man army into two separate actual projects and kind of work on those. That's probably going to be my take up most of next year now that I say it out loud.
2: Cool. I think it's a good idea. It's always good to, you know, when you have an army they can work for multiple things that you start it one way, but you sort of pivot it and do it for something else. Have you seen the, um, speaking of 3d miniatures, the lost kingdom sort of Brittonian esque knights. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. Oh man.
3: Dude. There's a, there's a few guys around here that are pretty excited about that, but they look great.
2: Uh, just look amazing. So it's one of those things where it's like, uh, we've had a lot of stuff on 3d printing right before. And I don't think it's, you know, um, we won't touch on the debate on if it's going to replace real game stars or whatever you want to say. But I will say that I'm getting to the point now where I need to. I know that I'm never going to have enough time, space, or energy right now to pick up 3D printing as a hobby that I do. You know, with the podcast and painting and video games and everything, I just don't have the free time. But I've hit that point where I need to find like my dealer. You know who's gonna be my 3D who's gonna be my 3D printer guy? You know I got a guy, I I got a shirt guy on Broadway. You know I need a guy who's gonna be like my 3D printer guy because some of these. I'm stuff super come lucky. Out. Why? Because you have a guy. You, you got to Yeah, you well, know, like, your guy to me, I got to get on your. Well,
3: Amon was on. Or we had him on our 3D printing episode, and oh. he's just been he's gone whole hog. I think he's getting his second resin printer so he could, like just be printing like nonstop all the time, like just every day of the week but he's so he's he supplying take orders? i imagine we could i can hook you up okay i also have a shipping guy that he can use to ship in the states So. i got guys for you
2: <laughs> some guy's going to show up in my house with a beret and a maple leaf t-shirt and go oh ha, ha. are you french i don't even know where french canada is are you in french canada <laughs> I'm, not, I'm about like not six, <laughs> six or
3: seven hours away from. Well, from, from but Quebec, I just
2: imagined yeah. your shipping guy to be French Canadian for some reason. Yeah, you want it's some poutine? And yeah. Ha, ha.
3: <laughs> yeah. No, so it's been great because like, like a lot of our guys are in here just for like terrain or just like random one-off things. I know John, the local elf guy, got some dragon riders and stuff. So it's just it's been a really big boon for our local community and with everyone having a little more extra hobby time. To even just build up their stash of unpainted stuff or just work on stuff that they haven't gotten around to. Eamon's been like just pumping out resin miniatures like no one's business. Yeah.
2: And I think uh, what you've noticed is there's a style of design when you're designing STL files where you don't necessarily have to think about how do I mass produce these models as opposed to how do I make the coolest models possible? You know, and some with supports or some without when they're giving you the STL files. But I think there's a little bit of artistic freedom in miniature design when you know, you don't have to worry about the manufacturing back end. Does that resonate with you guys at all?
3: We've had that discussion here locally, actually, because we talk about like, you know, how Mantic has improved the quality of their miniatures and like how there are still a few mass producing like plastic miniatures out there, but there's that, that realm is pretty small, but like, the resin guys, the 3D printing resin guys, can they have? They don't have the restrictions of having to make sprues or you know how to you know have mass-produced casting for like resin or metal. Like they can do weird stuff that like as long as they sell the file, you know enough times they're good. They don't have to worry about building the infrastructure. I think that really, I think you make a good point. Like it really opens up options.
2: And I think that's something when people comment on um, when they're looking at Mantic models or whatever models and be like, you know, uh, critiquing them for design, often they'll go, they'll use that as like uh, their, their uh, wild thing, or evidence or whatever. say It's like, well, look at this 3D company. They have like one guy doing 3D models and look how awesome the sculpts are. And that's true. But I think there is something to be said when you're designing a model, when you're designing it strictly from an artistic, you never have to make it really. Or I have to design this to work in a sprue, or I have to design this to work in resin casting because I have to cast a thousand of them or whatever the case is. I think there is different uh, sandbox that you're playing in. But, I mean, there's some really great stuff coming out in 3D printing, like these uh, Lost Kingdom miniatures. I know a lot of people have, like, their Salamander stuff. Very, very high-quality stuff, so... I may at some point here, like I said, I'm gonna to have to get my resin guy on the on the team. I think Austin stuff.
1: Kerrigan is doing paintings, uh, the box art for that release for those Lost Kingdom miniatures.
2: Oh, he is. Well, I know that like that's, uh... he's been doing Austin. Awesome, you know, is an amazing painter, Austin Kerrigan, and I know he's been doing a lot of stuff for different companies like that. So that's awesome. That's awesome okay well we're going to take a quick break and on the other side we are going to come back and talk a little bit about the alamo gt uh, and then we'll transition into a call to arms so we'll be right back
0: hello this is duncan Rhodes from the duncan Rhodes painting academy and i hope you're about to apply a
2: second thin coat just there whilst you're listening to counter charge
1: hi this is eric Trovers, 2020 u.s master and you're listening to counter charge
2: and we are back um Like I said at the top of the show, Tom and I are briefly going to talk a little bit about the Alamo GT that was held in San Antonio on November 7th and 8th at the Hyatt Regency on the San Antonio Riverwalk. Um, It was uh, Ryan Smith's yearly tournament. For those not familiar with Ryan Smith, uh, he's one of the hosts of the Beer Phase podcast, which I was told still exists and uh, will maybe have an episode come out in 2020, but I'm not sure. As we get closer (laughs) and closer closer to January. But Ryan's pretty well-renowned as one of the best painters in the country. I mean, just an amazing painter. And not only that, like I kind of loop him in with Austin Kerrigan as being real proponents and um, uh, Jedi Master-esque in encouraging and bringing along other painters. You know, as far as really wanting to sort support painters grow in their hobby. They, the, Ryan comes to judging from a, a perspective, I think, of looking at the style in which you paint and how effectively did you achieve that style, whether or not he even likes the style or not. Uh, and then also beyond that of, of, of taking time to sit with you and talk with you about where you are on your painting journey and some suggestions on what you can do to improve. So it's really kind of an event known as a hobby event. Which for me being uh, really trying to keep my hobby up, it's probably one of my favorite tournaments of the year. It's five games. It's kind of uh, in, in Texas fashion, uh, very unique scenarios, even more so in that the first couple games are at 1995, and then uh, the later games in the tournament are at 2,500. So you have to bring effectively two army lists uh, to the event. So when I was thinking about whether or not I was going to go to Alamo, you know, Countercharge, we were not really like a political show. And I've often said in the past, what I do for a profession working in social work is is sort of my political statement. But as far as choosing or, or, or not choosing to go to an in-person tournament, sort of the factors that I looked at is I was following the, all the, the COVID numbers of Bexar County, which is where San Antonio is located, like the couple weeks leading up to the tournament. And obviously, where we were at November, right, guys, is not where we are now. I mean, the numbers are, are completely different. So if Alamo had been now or even a couple weeks ago or a couple weeks in the future, I definitely wouldn't go. Um, but at that time, um, living in a household where I'm not surrounded by anyone with comorbidities, um, I'm a relatively healthy guy. Uh, no asthma, no anything like that. Like I said, I was following the dashboard. uh, that county in San Antonio were in the green. They had, uh, they weren't having increased number of cases. Some days they were. It was even uh, they were a lessening. And then I just decided before I would go, I got a COVID test, and then I quarantined. And then in in the plane, I wore a mask. I had gloves. And then when I got back, I also took a, a COVID test and was quarantined. So I really, sort of giving myself bookend, you know, trying to be as safe as possible. And then when we got to the tournament, you know everyone was really good. Uh, uh, Ryan had it really spread out. Uh, you weren't close to anyone. you had a lot of space. everyone was wearing masks. No one was uh, uh, I, I did not at all feel pressured or I, like I wouldn't go out and eat inside any restaurants, only eat outdoors. so and I think, I don't know what your thoughts are, Tom, but I think everyone was there with the mind of if if we want to be able to make in-person tournaments work within the COVID era, we really got to make sure we all follow these safety precautions. Otherwise, we don't want to screw it up for everyone, right?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah,
2: absolutely. That's
1: definitely the attitude. And the other thing, I think it was John Green who said this in, in a post somewhere. You know, we're all, it's a small community and we all know each other and we all care about each other. And so... We don't want to, you know, we don't want to get each other sick. It's not like we're just coming out into the public. Uh, you know, these are our, our good friends that we're around. And uh, so we want to do everything possible to make it as safe as possible. So that was, that was definitely the attitude of the weekend.
2: Yeah, so I think that the numbers at the time, which again I say are different from now, uh, along with all the safety precautions and everything, and then based on my own personal situation, I felt that it was uh, a risk a level of risk that I was willing to take. And I was happy that when I got there, people were following the rules, people, you know, if you didn't wanna go inside a a restaurant or whatever, no one was, I don't don't feel there was any shaming going on as far as where you fell on the spectrum of how much, how safe you wanted to be. But it was a lot of, it was a, a, a super fun event, um, we're not really going to go so much through every game because it has been a while. So I thought Tom and I would just sort of uh, touch base on maybe some some highlights or, or some stuff that uh, that stood out. So uh, why don't first Tom, you let us know how did you do, uh, you know, record placing wise, and then maybe talk uh, talk a little bit about did anything stand out for you or any highlights?
1: Sure. So because this tournament was in November and the early November, like the first weekend in November. And the Clash of Kings book came out, I think, mid-October, maybe a little bit earlier than that. Ryan wasn't sure about, you know, whether or not everyone had their books or if there'd be shipping delays or things like that. And so he just decided this will be, you know, the last the last tournament in the South that is run under the original third edition rules. So for me specifically, that meant um, <laughs> You know, my RevCav and my Revenant Flying Worms uh, were not 15 points more expensive. So it was kind of a last last hurrah for the, the type of list that I had been playing for most of the year. Uh, and so, I you know, I took pretty much the, the standard meta undead list. Two, two Soul Reavers, uh, Infantry Regiments, two White Hordes, you know, two Flying Kings, two... RevCav regiments and i added the rates for the first time um in this tournament which they're amazing (laughs) even even if they are regular they're still pretty amazing (laughs) and so i was able to go five and oh in this tournament which is the first time i've ever done that and i was super super pleased i ended up fifth overall which you know is mostly paints people had a higher paint score than me I was actually really, really happy with my paint score. The thing about Alamo is Ryan judges solely on paint. Like he doesn't care if you have conversions or what, you know, where your models are coming from or what your basing is like. It's just purely like you were saying earlier, Jeremy, what what kind of painting style are we going for and how well do you pull it off? So even though I think he's probably the toughest judge um, that we have in the region, he's also the most fair. You really know where you stand paint wise after going to this tournament, especially when you're bringing a new army like I was. Um, you're not quite sure, you know, what what he thinks about it. And so I was, I had a pretty good paint score. Um, it's just people like Dustin Howard and John Green uh, have amazing, amazing paint, and so a couple, a couple of those guys edged, edged me out. Um, it was really, really close to the top. I think. The top five people were separated by three or four points, um, but but yeah. So Dustin Dustin won with his ice elementals again. They're beautiful, and then Aaron Chapman got second overall. Um, and he he and I played in the last game, game five, top table, um, and I was able to, to beat him. Uh, I think it was like thirteen to seven or something. It was a pretty close game, but uh, yeah. So that was. That was the tournament uh, for me. It was it was very fun, and I was, you know, I'm at the point where I don't really care about winning the tournament necessarily. I was just more happy to to win all my games. Like that's that's something that I've that was a goal of mine um, in a tournament, and so I was just happy as able to pull that off.
2: Yeah, and a, a smaller field for you know, based on everything that's going on, but still like jammed pack full of really Talented hobbyists and players, so definitely not a small feat to to go undefeated at a tournament that has a field like that. So you know, congratulations to your OP BS <laughs> army. Uh, enjoy this <laughs> while it lasts. It, it,
1: it was funny. Uh, Matt, I played Matt Carmack round two, and uh, he was playing his Empire Dustless, where he, you know, second edition he had all the chariots. Then he changed it all over to all red cav. For third edition, and so he was playing his like basically all red catalyst, and I was playing my undead. And he was going by Halpies' rift points values. He was like 120 points over, <laughs> and I was like 60 points over. Uh, and so we were kind of laughing about that. But but yeah, it was it was a good last hurrah for me.
2: Well, I had a pretty good time. I chose to um, again being as you said a ryan smith tournament and uh knowing that like uh the list that i had been playing a lot that um i took to riddle of steel and did well in and all that kind of stuff i wasn't going to finish probably in time so i just decided just to take you know, try to take a, as as good a list as I could, but really just focus on taking what are the best possible painted models that I can take. So prior to Alamo, I finished my dragon, but I also went back to my Gur Panthers and some of the stuff that I painted earlier on in the project, and spent like a good three or four days really bringing, trying to bring up to the level of uh, the the latest piece. So I really just told myself, you know, I'm gonna focus. On this event, obviously, I'm going to try to win my games, but I'm going to try to really just make this as, as big a hobby point as I can. You know, I've really been trying to break through that, like, solid tabletop army painting level to, like, the next level above, which, depending on who's there, maybe you're in the—you're starting to get into the, like, top three or four painted armies. That's sort of kind of when I've been trying to break through from that solid tabletop level to, like, the next tier So I ended up for this one, for me, picking up third best painted, which uh, uh, technically I finished fourth, but because Dustin won best overall, he was above me in paint by, like Tom said, was really close, only by a handful of points. Uh, In Texas, they don't give multiple awards to the same people. They allow the awards to be spread out. Um, so I'm not going to complain. I took that award. I worked really hard to up my paint, so I have no problem putting that on my trophy wall. Um,
1: no, that's something to be proud of, especially in that field. You had uh, Dustin, you had Jeff Swan, you had Hank Goosh. You people may have seen his uh, Friedorf like hot tub hot themed tub army. Yeah, so that's that's some pretty stiff competition. So you should be proud.
2: And that guy's guy uh, amazing. I mean, there's some armies that they look good at, on on. Uh, Pictures, but until you see them in person, you don't really. There's just something magical about them. I think like Scott Holcomb's pirate army is sort of like that, right? Where you can see pictures of it and it's amazing, but once you see it in person with the f- smoke and the, and and Hank had like a motion sensor laser light show with smoke machine, where you walk by his display board, be, yeah. the dwarves would start like partying, and it was a. Uh,
1: well, I go over to uh, play at Jeff Swan's house sometimes with uh, Hank and Jordan Lawrence, and so it's just like showing up there with those three guys who are some of the top painters in the country, at least that I've seen. Uh, it's just like, jeez, <laughs> it makes you a little
3: self-conscious. I was just saying, H- Hank's new Varanger that he's been working on—that he's been painting up some really amazing monsters. If, you have, if you've been paying attention on on Fanatics and stuff, it's uh, just incredible. Walrus.
2: More yeah. Orca yeah and that's one thing I, lo- I love about tabletop titans you know i mean i think dojo is really well known for uh having solid hobbyists as well but being like just this real think tank incubator for for being so good at making really powerful lists and playing the game well and i think the titans do that as well to some extent but also we have just like a really strong hobby club i mean up and down we have like just all these really great painters so shout out to, uh, like you said, to Hank and to Jeff and Jordan couldn't come, but Jordan's another really great painter. So as far as my games, I played uh, Jeff Swan in round one, which normally you wouldn't do in a tournament like that because you, you don't play your club mates early on. But since it's sort of like a smaller event and Jeff and I are more about we just wanted to sort of have fun and 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 with the COVID and everything going on, we just wanted our first game just to, to be good. Um, and I played Jeff a couple times, and he's like just annihilated me. He he beat me really bad at, <laughs> at last. This not this last riddle steel, but the in between. I would have been three time riddle steel champion, but Swan totally crapped on my face in the second one and just destroyed me. So we've talked on the show about being proactive or reactive players, where you're a player who is aggressive and forces your opponent to make bad decisions, or you are a reactive player where you wait for your opponent to make a bad decision and then you capitalize on that choice. I tend to skew towards reactive, even though I play Baseline Speed. I'm still trying to put my opponent in a position to to engage somewhere that's not good and then and then uh, encircle and capitalize. Jeff is also a really um, reactive player and his list is probably better at being reactive than my list he plays like a nature earth elemental tree herder, just just sits back and does nothing until you do something and then he just wrecks you Yeah. so i think that going up in a mirror match with him not per se mirror match based on army construction but mirror match based on similar play styles um i found he was very difficult to beat in that second game in that I was waiting to engage, and then by the time I did engage, he's just I couldn't kill anything, and we were playing in an invade scenario. But only units across the invade line that had been infected with COVID counted as scoring units, and there was some mechanics in the scenario about how COVID would transfer from unit to unit and stuff like that. But he's
1: absolutely you know, like a reactive player. He's like a master of that play style. It's kind of funny that he has gravitated towards Trident Realm and kind of been their champion because I think. Like that army, how it's supposed to be played at least, just matches exactly what uh, what he likes to do. And contrast with a, someone like I played Aaron in round five, and Baron he plays Varenger a lot, um, and his his play style is matches their their the way they're supposed to be, supposed to be played. I think exactly just runs forward and smashes you. And you know if you survive, then maybe you can counter punch and beat him. But he's just going to come at you straight forward and hit you as hard as you can. And and Jeff is the exact opposite of that. So I don't know. It's just interesting to me how people's personalities get brought out on the tabletop and what armies they field and how they play.
2: Yeah. And sometimes I feel like I'm in this weird space where I play like aggressive armies on paper, but that's not how I like to play on the table, which I think can be good sometimes because then it means where you're kind of not being aggressive where your opponent thinks you are and then they engage and then you're like haha now i'm gonna charge you with my whole army and kill all your stuff but so jeff thrashed me again so i'm 0-2 against him so uh i definitely will uh uh, get that monkey off my back at some point here but it, it then put me in my my game was very much a weird where uh, going into round two, only having one point, me and I, I played a pretty new player, so I got max, max points in that game. And then in my next game, I so it was like a loss, max points, loss, max points. And then I played in the, my last round, I played Jose Vega, uh, who some of you might know from um, Hobby Sauce. He plays with Matt. He's on there a couple times. And I'll be like really honest, and we talked about this, Tom. Um, I was really um, surprised... Uh, and and really happy to see, like, how good he's gotten. I mean, he played, like, really tough uh, first couple turns. And I have a bad habit of sometimes, you know the baseball expression, you hit it as hard as they throw? So sometimes I, if I feel like um, I don't necessarily need to, or just basically in the start of the game, sometimes I I don't play as good a first or second turn as I would like. I don't have my foot on the pedal, and I'm... I'm just not uh, in trying to be really cognizant and aware of like my own good things and bad things as a player. Sometimes Mm. I play a little soft in the beginning of the game and Jose had me in a real bad spot, but by the end of the game, it ended up being really, really, really close. Um, I think it ended up being like 12, eight or something like that. He still won, but he was in a, like a position to really like do nasty things to me. But really solid player. I mean, he's gotten he's was, he's was playing a order of the green lady with all the flying stuff and the knights and the water elementals, all the all the accoutrements that you would take with that list. But he played really well.
1: Yeah, yeah, he he started playing the same time I did, like about three years ago. And uh, yeah, he's gotten a ton better. That's it. I mean, not to brag, but the South region is just so deep that there's a lot of guys you've never even heard of. That would be. You know, pretty close to masters players in other regions, um, and so it's it's a challenge no matter who you play. Just to and that, you know, brush the dirt off my shoulders a little bit for my region, but.
2: No, it's true. I mean, and I think that when you go to the top players in each region, those players are always plus or minus 5% of each other for the most part. You have your outliers, you know what I mean? Right. Like who are who are maybe 7% better, you know what I mean, who are, who are on the 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 cuffs of that bell curve. But I think the difference in regions that you see is when you get path when you get to player 4, 5 or 6, how good are those players? Are you get the player 7 or 8 on the masters team? How good are those players? And the South is just one of those undeniable regions where they could have, you know, the depth of their field is usually very strong all the way down from one to eight. Awesome. Well, uh, moving forward, I'm, I'm curious to hear what you guys think. You know, here we are right now. We're in this really bad surge that we all know that we're in. And, you know, people are locking down, especially with, um, you know, a light at the end of the tunnel. Like, I don't I don't know necessarily we say lights around the around the corner, but there is with. The, the vaccine coming you know i think that there is a a, a a finish line maybe somewhere out there how do you guys see um you know adepticon canceled um which makes sense to me because adepticon is held in march and that takes months of prep time so canceling adepticon now for 2021 makes complete sense to me because they would have to start s- scheduling now and there's so much money and, and jobs and i think they want to make sure that adepticon still exists as a thing and i think it would be really hard for them if they tried to do another adepticon and then had to cancel it again so it totally makes sense to me that they're saying you know no no adepticon um for next year and then we'll be back in 2022 but what do you guys think maybe come spring summer how how do you vision the in-person tournament scene to be um what do you think, Alex? Why don't you go first? Yes,
3: yeah, so I think here, I was looking forward to maybe, you know, with the Masters moving to the summer during the same, like, couple weeks as uh, the King Beyond the Wall tournament that I organized. I was looking at new dates and kind of, op- I was hoping to maybe do something in the early spring. But I think at this point, for me, like, my personal tournament, I'm going to look for the fall to organize because I don't think anything in the spring is going to be much of an option at this point. Because like you're saying, like it's going to take, we're, we're still, cases are still going up. So things are going to have to start going down again before we can start organizing things. And I think, you know, the next six months are going to be pretty important to watch just because see how the vaccine rollout, you know, how that happens, how that, you know, how the whole situation responds to it. So... I'm hoping, you know, we can get to a point where we can have small in-person tournaments. Like, currently for, for you know, our local scene, like, the border's closed, so everything is going to have to be, you know, a Canadian or provincial kind of event at this point. But hopefully, like, I think, like, you know, early summer we can get some smaller, you know, 16 20 person tournaments we have like the the venues that i have available here at least that i know of i can fit 20 people with lots of space for you know at a reasonable without having to like increase the price per ticket or per entrant so you know there's options available for you know safe distanced events but i think at this point it's going to be like an early summer late summer kind of thing just depending on how things you know, respond to the, the new changes that are going to be coming.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I think that makes total sense to me um, is uh, like you said, the vaccines and everything is going to take a while. And I think that before you do an event, you want to see numbers trending down or at least uh, being at a stable, you know, not increasing uh, of being like a, a plateau ish um I op- I often ha- have the attitude and I'm curious to hear what Tom thinks but I, I often have the attitude of trying to stay positive until we have reason not to be. So I think a lot there's been a lot of talk about masters, right? You know, masters is supposed to take place roughly in June, July. Um you know, we've talked a little bit. We've begun the, to talk a little bit about not so much the um the planning logistics of masters because we're still so far away, but talking a little bit about like the pack, like points wise, are, will are we going to use the happy characters or whatever, try to look at aspects of the masters that we can begin to plan now without, uh, that we can go ahead and plan now, no matter what, because they're the way it's going to be no matter if or where or when we hold it. But I mean, I like to think that um, come the summer, um, that we'll be in a position to have masters in some sort of shape or size, you know, maybe it's smaller, maybe not, you know, this is nothing coming from the masters council. This is all just me just spitballing. But I think that if we're in a position come summer where we, we, we've seen numbers slowly decreasing and uh, more and more people are getting vaccinated. Um, I think hopefully by summer or fall we'll enter a space where we can um, start having tournaments again. You know, I still see all of 2021 having masks and distancing, and all. You know, it's not like all of a sudden we're just going to be like, okay, let's just have the tournament like we used to. I think some of those safety precautions make sense, right, to stay as part of the tournament scene for the next year, year and a half. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Tom?
1: Yeah, I think. A wait-and-see approach is, is the best way to go about it. You know, who knows what's going to happen in, in five months or six months from where we're recording today. Um, I think the first couple of months of next year are pretty much going to be, you know, no-go for most, for all tournaments pretty much. Um, but, you know, I, I'm still out like you. I'm optimistic about Masters uh, happening in July. And whether that means, you know, maybe we don't do it best of the rest this year just to, you know, reduce the amount of people that are around in, in the same room, which would be sad because it was such a, an awesome part of the Masters Tournament uh, last year, or I guess earlier this year. Um, but, you know, I, I, it could be done assuming, you know, the, the case numbers are where they need to be. Um, for my region in particular, you know, Lone Wolf is supposed to happen in April, and so I have no idea if that's going to even be possible, but uh, we'll, we'll see. That'll probably be a pretty good litmus test for Masters. Um, if we can't do Lone Wolf, then, then I don't know. Um, so I'm optimistic like you. We'll, we'll see yeah. what happens.
2: I think that that's a smart sort of balanced way, which is let's, let's keep a look at the numbers. Let's be optimistic, but let's still – I always feel like we can find this middle ground where we we, we be science-informed and 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 find a space where uh, being able to identify what's acceptable risk and what's not and all that stuff. But, yeah, I'm just going to choose to stay positive. We'll just – we're really um, agile, and we can roll with the punches as a community. And as long as we make sure we make our, our primary goal to support each other and be there for each other and not – shame or ridicule or, or attack anyone uh i think that uh you know c- come into mid or end of 21 we'll be back and, are, and and then come 2022 we'll we'll kind of look back on this period and be all like oh man that was crazy um
1: <laughs> yeah i don't know if you listen to it but uh jake chair and uh, the unplugged gamers on the unplugged radio podcast had a episode they dropped last week i think Talking about what what is the community like post COVID? What does it look like, and what what do we all need to do to make sure you know our, there's a community there to go back to. And so I think right now people should be reaching out to local members and and to service kind of a light of the, at the end of the tunnel, just keeping everybody together for a little bit longer, um, and then until we can start playing games together again.
3: Yeah, I don't think there's like we don't need to be. All doom and gloom. I think we just need to be, you know, realistic. Acknowledge the situation we're in and make the best of it. And just, you know, stay connected with your community. Stay connected with your local, you know, gaming stores. You know, just being, you know, we're still part of a community even if we can't have as many tournaments as we'd like or game and, you know, person as often or at all. Um, we're still a community. We still support each other and just kind of like be realistic, be safe, and just keep on staying connected as in any way we can like call to arms other ub games you know facebook chat after dark type chats to hang out you know and just and i think the stores are an important part of that as well like keep connected with your store make sure the store owners know that you're thinking of them you know everyone's a little bit stressed these days but you know make purchases that are you know there to support them and keep things going and just keep engaged with all the different people in your community
2: yeah really well said because you know we always we forget sometimes that the local friendly game store is really the lifeblood and it's the beating heart of the the gaming scene and um it's where people play it's where we have events it's where you can go and pick up you know uh you can always order stuff online but there's something to be said about oh i need a i need a new brush i'm gonna go down to for me the loose caboose Hobby store in Napa, which is my local friendly game store, and uh, which is a train shop, but they sell miniature stuff.
3: (laughs) The loose caboose.
2: The loose caboose (laughs) is the name. That
3: does not sound (laughs) like a game store.
2: Well, uh, hey, this is this is the Bay Area in California, okay? Exactly. Yeah. Um. Uh. But I mean, really, you know, touch base with your game store. You know, if you gotta buy stuff, whenever absolute possible, it doesn't matter what you're buying, just buy something. I mean, we've talked about that in the past, right? When we were talking about mantic models or not mantic models, and and Tom, we, we mentioned your post when Rob and I were talking about it, which is the really the thing is, you know, just buy where you play, whatever you're buying, put money into your local game store if you're if you have the budget to spend on stuff. I I really think your your primary spot should be let me try to buy it from my local store first before I, before I Absolutely. order it online. So key. Yep.
3: It's like it might be five or ten percent more than an online discount retailer. Sometimes it might be the same price. You just didn't really ever look there, but like just going there and think of it as like, you know, these places are providing a space to play and like a hub for the community. So you you're paying into the community as well. It's really the important part about the whole game, right?
2: And how many times on like a Friday after work have you been working on a project, or you're like, oh, I'm really excited, I'm gonna do this this unit tonight. Oh no, I'm out of primer, or I'm out of this. Oh, I'm gonna head down to my local game store and buy it. Just imagine if if that wasn't there, and you had to always purchase your stuff from Amazon or whatever, it would be it would suck. So, um, but good point, guys. I think let's stay fluid, let's stay adaptable, let's stay positive. Uh, let's stay science informed let's uh, support each other and like you said uh, we're on the home stretch now i really uh, believe that even though that home stretch may, may be another six or eight months we are we are i really truly believe on the home stretch so um, let's just keep it up for these last few months and then uh, we're we'll make it through to the other side so awesome we're gonna take one more break and when we come back we're going to talk about call to arms we'll be right back I'm Ronnie from Magic Games, and You're listening.
0: Do you take delight in playing with friends and their toys in a safe place, free of judgment? Countercharge after dark. It's where magic happens. Check the show notes and Facebook group announcements for the Discord link.
2: And we are back. So in our final segment, we're going to talk a, a little Call to Arms, and then we'll talk a little bit about sort of where we see the meta uh, right now or, and going forward. So Alex, why don't you take us first uh, through your first couple of games of Call to Arms? You know, um, no need to sort of get into too, the minutiae of the games, but kind of what have you been playing? What has your been your your record so far? So what is your feeling going into the first few games of Call to Arms?
3: So like I, saying, I alluded to earlier, um, I switched things up. I played Undead in the, the Cult Arms this summer. But to keep it in line with like using an army that I'm actually working on, I thought I'd go with League of Vororia this time to kind of play around with that. And I've used a couple different kind of list, list archetypes. I had like an infantry-based list in my first game, and then... I thought, well, I'm playing League of Rortia, so I might as well use Honor Guard, so I added two hordes of those for games two and three, <laughs> and they have been working nicely. Uh, and f- my first game was against uh, I think Kevin Darrington, in the- a UK player who was using Salamanders, and that was a really tight, close game. It was a really a lot of kg movement, where uh, as he made my organ guns hit on sixes almost the entire game. And there came down to some pivotal, pivotal, you know, combats, turn five and six. Um, I can't remember exactly what the scenario was. Tom, do you remember round one scenario? Um, it was plunder. Plunder. All right. Yes, yeah, so I eked out a pretty tight win. Um, that came down to turn six and seven, like, like I said. So that was a really great, great game. And that put me, you know, kind of medium. It wasn't, it wasn't a huge win, so I was like kind of top third-ish. And I ended up playing Sam Soudan Garcia in round two, which is on uh, Dash 28, if anyone is curious. It was a little bit of a mirror match. He played Kingdoms of Men, and I switched my organ guns to cannon. So we both had a triple organ gun, double infantry horde kind of thing going, or I had one infantry horde and two regiments. He had two a foot guard and a pike horde. Oh no, he had two pike hordes. That one went pretty well for me pretty early. Um, He moved his knights up pretty aggressively on one flank and he and then I countered by moving up my honor guard pretty aggressively and he couldn't back out of charge range, so that kind of let my let me roll a flank a little bit, and we had a bit of a shooting battle in the middle. But Honor Guard coming down the flank usually win the game, I found. <laughs> so that went pretty well. It was also a really good game, though. There's a good back and forth, and our cannons kind of had a bit of a shooting match, which was fun. Then, round three, I got to play former us master patrick zoro allen which was pretty cool i hadn't, I hadn't pl- haven't played that many guys from texas so that was is pretty cool to be able to play one of the one of the top dogs in the state he was running trident realm and i stuck with my league of rhodia it was uh Raze, so i luckily got first turn which is huge in Rays. um and I just kind of waited one flank to try and like get my three tokens and kind of left one of his one of his kind of unguarded just with the idea that I could sweep down and kind of twist into the middle which usually works pretty well with Rays and he kind of went with a bit of a more multiple small units list and I had a lot of lightning bolt so that kind of played to my favor so I could pick off his shooting which was in troops with my lightning bolt. And I got a lucky turn one uh, cannon barrage on his gigas to take them out. The cannons didn't do anything for the rest of the game after that, but that was enough to kind of tip the balance in my favor to let me kind of dictate what was going on. Cause I had a bit of a unit advantage at that point. So I've had three really good games, three great opponents, a lot of fun. Um, that's one of the best things about cult arms and universal battles is it's getting to meet people from all over the world and play against people you would never have a chance to play against. There aren't that many Salamander or Kingdoms of Men players around here. So I don't really get a chance to play against them very often. And, you know, you don't often get the chance to play against former U.S. Masters players ever otherwise. So I've I've had the honor of losing to Alex Chavez twice in person at Crossroads Two years in a row, though, so that's Mm-mm. that's something.
2: <laughs> um, and Pat's, just a, Pat's just a great opponent, no matter if he's winning or losing. He's probably oh, yeah.
3: awesome.
2: as far as looking at top players who are also really sporting players. Yeah. Pat is up there in the stratosphere.
3: Yeah, yeah, it was a fun game. We were just in like every game so far. It's been fun, like joking back and forth. And you know, listeners will be interested to know that I've been playing on a clock and not having. Issues, so all the games have been, you know, under two and a half hours and going smoothly. um But yeah, it's been awesome. I, I was a little, I felt like maybe I would be a little burnt out on Universal Battle going into Call to Arms because I played in It's always sunny in Panathor as well at the end of summer. But you know, honestly, once the game gets going, it's it's just fun. I've, I've been taking a little bit more of a relaxed approach to list building and th- thinking about the rounds. I'm just like I'm just gonna use this list, use this army, play the rounds as they come, and it's been great. Um so I think I'm I'm thinking of top five at this point,
2: which is pretty good for Yeah, with okay. your with your new relaxed approach. To <laughs> yeah, he's you're, one you're... point back from the leader <laughs> in second place. <laughs> in, in third place. <laughs> one point behind Michael Zettelmeyer. So that's nice, you know, go with the relaxed you know, the dude abides, right? Alex. Yeah, I'm just, so,
3: like, I was, a pretty high anxiety person in general, so I've been trying to like let my hobby be a bit more of a relaxed part of my life, so it's I think it's working.
2: Uh, smart. Um, what's your thoughts on going first and raise, Tom? Are you kind of with Alex in that that's one of those scenarios that going first really does give you a nice step up?
1: Yeah, I think uh, other than invade, it's probably the scenario with the biggest first turn advantage, and they've tried to neuter that a little bit by making it so you can't score any points until your second turn uh but but the advantage is still there so i like Rays. it's a it's a different snare than um you know just have more unit strength in this part of the board or or pick up these loot tokens so i think it's a worthy inclusion in the list um i don't know if there's tweaks that can be made to make that first turn advantage smaller but i definitely agree it's there
3: I like it because it makes you do things that are weird, like in the context of other scenarios. Like you can just throw a horde at something on turn two or three, knowing that it's going to get swamped, but you're going to score that token, and you, you can you can weigh that that trade, which is something that you wouldn't want to really do in any other scenario. Yeah,
1: yeah. I was talking with uh, Adam Padley and Elliot Morsh today, who are uh, co tos for Call Arms, along with Dan Miners, the fourth guy. Um, and they were talking about changing so it's northern king scoring for this call arms tournament and uh, for the bonus points if you control the middle you got two bonus points it's still worth one for the scenario but two for bonus and they were talking about maybe making the bonus points be if you capture all three of your own tokens to kind of make sure people get out there and, and fight for all the tokens so I don't know that, that sounds like a good idea to me
3: cool and then there's so also it- the just like abandoning your the tokens on your side of the board like there might be something to be said like maybe like there's like a a differential like guess like a, bo- a bonus point for having a differential as opposed to just like abandoning everything on your side of the board to score your tokens to controlling or preventing your opponent from scoring some of theirs i'm not yeah but that might yeah. that might make it worse i don't know <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, speaking of Chavez, you know, that was the final round in Masters, right? Uh, And I played against him, and I had this one moment where it was like, do I just send a unit over to this objective on my side of the board in the left, knowing it's going to die, but knowing that that stops him from scoring that for like a couple of turns? Is that cr- it was like such a horrible move for any tactical reason other than it just would have delayed him and I ended up not doing it and I probably should have in retrospect. But like you said, a raise gives you some opportunities to, to do some wacky things that you normally would never do to give you that one turn clear and objective. Mm-hmm. So definitely a, a cool scenario. Um what about you, Tom? You know, you're, you're wearing a couple hats, you know, like you said, you're, you're helping with uh, the back-end tournament TO responsibilities, but also you're playing in Call to Arms. What's sort of been your experience the first couple games?
1: So I, I've, I don't know, I treat Call to Arms a little bit differently. Um, <laughs> I don't really practice for my next tournament. I actually don't really like playing my tournament lists just uh, outside of actually uh, going to the tournaments. So I try to mix it up and just play different things. Or, you know, if I, I've never played an army before, I'll, I'll try it out. If there's a specific list that I want to understand more about how it works, I think the best way to do that is to play with it. And so um, I've had three good games. Um, around one, I played uh, Jan Lee, or Lei, uh, he's an Australian guy. And that round I played, uh, it was 1995, so I came up with a pretty cool uh, Veringer list that had, like, four drawer regiments, two Snowfoxes, two Fallen, two Huscarls, Magnild, and two Lord on Frostfangs, like, just all, all the super good stuff in Veringer. Um, but I, I, I hadn't played Veringer in 3rd Edition uh, yet, so it was, it was pretty fun. Um, he, he was playing Herd. And he did, he had the Wilt Father and two four Shambler regiments, which he kind of shoved down my throat um, with his scout moves, gave me charges on turn one. And so, um, you know, with a scouting army, sometimes it speeds up the game. And so I'm taking, so I took the charges that he gave me and actually didn't pop the four Shambler horde that I charged. Um, but he decided not to take the flank that he had with the Wilt father on, I think it was a mounted son's regiment or something. And uh, so I don't know if he would have done that if it would have been different, but I recovered from that and uh, pulled out the victory. So that was round one. Uh, round two, I, I played Stephen Pierce, who's a UK guy. And I. I slightly ashamed to admit it but there was a lot of talk in one of the the kings of war group chats that i'm in about jeff o'neill's list it's got his uh, infamous goblin list that he had just won a uh, a southeast tournament with i think the week before uh that it was an in-person tournament and so there's a lot of talking about his list so i was like well uh you know let me let me just run out what he did and see how it works and it worked pretty well um Stephen was playing Northern Alliance, and he—if uh, for those not familiar with Jeff O'Neill's list—it's it's basically six rabble hordes, which then uh, you know you get a, a hero, a monster, and a horror engine unlocked for each one of those hordes. And goblins have amazing choices for each slot, so it's like three whiz, three bangits, three uh, rock lobbers, three mop-up launchers three blasters and three wingets. so it's it's a super soft list um
2: very friendly
1: yeah yeah and and, you know i don't know i it's weird because like i have i have developed this reputation at least with respect to call arms about like taking a lot of shooting which i never do uh in my normal lists like i typically have zero shooting or maybe a little bit of breath but um yeah last call of arms i played mostly abyssal doors with like mortars and hex casters and whatever and now i play his goblin list round two um so Steam did a good job he, he killed almost all of my army it was actually a really close game uh towards the end it came down to whether i would killed one of his uh one of his units in the in the center dominate circle because he had killed all my rabble red uh hordes except for one um but i mean it it showed me how nasty a list can be. I, like, I think I killed a thousand points of Northern Alliance and turn four or something like that. So, um, it's a, it's a boogeyman for a reason, but I wanted to understand how, how it plays. And so I, I gave it a spin. Um, and then round three, I played Mike Atkins, who is, you know, the Kings of War MVP for the, for the COVID pandemic. I think he's the guy behind the, the dash Twenty Eight live streams. And like, he, just created the uh the chess clock the digital chess clock that we've all been using and he's run a like a virtual tournament uh himself and so you know i i i'm really grateful for him and he's, definitely, he's definitely just done a, a ton of great stuff so i never played him before so he's a he's a super chill dude um we had a great game i i switched to night stalkers with zero shooting for this uh this round and Mike was playing his standard undead that he took to masters and you know he's saying he's because he's not paying for a tournament he's not really motivated to uh, come up with new lists and, and it was kind of interesting he was telling me like some of the local guys he's not getting together with the play and so they're not exchanging ideas as often um, so he's kind of he's kind of just in a in a stasis right now so he's just sticking his own okay.
2: You know, it's okay to just be. If you want to be in that stasis space, is fine. Um, yeah,
1: yeah. He was saying that Mike Austin and uh, the aforementioned Alex Chavez work together. So they chat about Kings of War during lunch every day. So they don't, they don't necessarily feel the need to chat on Facebook about it or whatever. So he's he's a little bit left out there. But um, anyway, it, we this is a really really close game. Um, I was able to pull it out, but it was it was very close um so yeah that was my first three games i'm sitting sixth right now two points back i don't think alex and i will get to play next round but uh maybe round five we'll see
3: yeah keep winning and we can face off finally we were close last cult arms i think we were, one round we were within like a point or two of each other
2: yeah are the yeah. key the key guys is you got to find a way to only play one game and be in 11th place <laughs> So, <laughs> the
3: jeremy Duval strategy the, the, the Duval <laughs> yeah. method
2: that's what you yes. have to do um you know normally in call to arms i i'm a, a, of the mind of tom where i think it's a really great space to do crazy stuff like last call to arms i had the counter charge audience um pick my lists for me um this year i decided that i would pick the list but i was only going to play armies that i was um contemplating for my 90 percent mantic so it was going to be, and it's st- armies that I've talked about on the show for a long time, right? Like Northern Alliance, um, Abyssals, maybe goblins. But if I did goblins, I think I would do the melee goblins with a bunch of luggets and and uh, try to find a, a space in the goblin list that maybe is a little bit more like offensive goblins as opposed to, or well, like melee offensive goblins as opposed to shooting goblins. Um,
3: offensive isn't like offensive to your like you know morals or sure. You know. Yeah.
2: <laughs> but again, like Tom, I don't play a lot of shooting in my in my army, so I have had some shooting in my called in the call to arms lists. Um, but due to scheduling stuff, you know how it is when you schedule you play have to play people in different regions and everything. A couple of my games have not been able to be scheduled. Um, so going into round the next round, I will be playing again either Northern Alliance or Abyssals. And then I think what I might do is I might just put some lists, make some actual lists. And instead of having having the audience audience choose what army I play and I play the list, or I make the list, I think I'm just going to put a, a bunch of lists on there and then they'll just pick it for me. So then going into that next game, I will have not made my list. I'll have made a bunch of different options. And then the audience, will you guys, will choose for me what you want me to play. Because I really feel Call of Arms should be a fun, you know, try new things, meet new people, um, I don't really take it as seriously as like a hyper competitive event. I have enough of those. I don't need Call of Arms to be that for me as well. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, now that we've had a few games of Call to Arms, you know, Tom, uh, Tom mentioned uh, uh, the Forge, right? I think was it Siege or Forge? I always get those two mixed up that they just had.
1: The Forge was what they just had. Siege was the one where everybody took, you know, six more engines and the Kingsville community freaked out.
2: Okay, I was January, yeah. Okay, the Forge and the Siege, for whatever reason, I just, I get those two mixed up, but Forge, which was um, run by Nate Clevenger, right? Um, One of the Sons of Vulcan, you know, really, really strong team with Jeff O'Neill and all those guys, so. um, But with that event and with Halpy's Rift, uh coming out why don't we talk a little bit about first off let's just do uh, big winners or losers coming from um Rifts. riffs are sort of where we're at right now you know it was a very mild clash of kings change but we haven't really had you on the show since then is there anything that jumped out to you at you uh in the Halpies clash of kings adjustments tom or was it all stuff that you really felt like made sense
1: i think that it would was- most of the changes were pretty well considered and they're what I like to see in balance changes, which is, you know, don't overreact, make a small change, see if it fixes whatever perceived problem there is, um, you know, and, and just let people play and figure it out, especially in the current environment where there's just not that many games being played. I mean, like when you're using call to arms results for justifications for balance changes. Some guy, yeah, I don't know what, how I feel about that exactly, but I understand why, um, you know, that they were looking at those results cause, just because they didn't have anything else. Um, so I think it was the right, you know, easy-handed approach, um, a light-handed approach with, you know, make a couple tweaks to some of the obvious stuff that everybody knew was, was too good or just, you know... It, a little bit slightly broken maybe and um with the exception of the wing it which for some reason <laughs>
3: didn't get nerfed more but
1: you know i Haven't think you I,
3: heard wingets are not even as good as snips so it's okay
1: <laughs> yeah yeah well you know th- i was playing abyssal dwarves last call of arms in uh large part at least this is what i told myself it was you know because a couple of my games were streamed and so i send them to some of the RC members and just be like, you know, you don't think mortars are dumb. You don't think hex casters are <laughs> really stupid. Like watch this game. And so, um, I don't know if I need to do that with the goblins again, play the last couple of rounds with them. But, uh, but yeah, overall, I think it was, a. It, I agree with almost all of the changes. Um, and I think it was the right, the, just the right amount of, of tweaking. Um, I'm sure I know that for a fact they have a lot lot more stuff they want to be doing um, balance-wise, but that'll come next year, I think.
2: Yeah, what do you think, Alex? I'm sort of with Tom in that I felt like, uh, granted, using only UB as metrics for changes – is not super great because i still honestly believe that there's similarities between the two spheres of play but in-person play and online play are their own metas to some extent but in general i sort of like their approach like tom said of of hitting the the most egregious uh, offenders and maybe other stuff's on their radar that they didn't really act on but was there anything that jumped out of you about the Halpies changes that made sense or didn't make sense are you sort of on the same page as tom
3: yeah, I think I'm generally on the same page. Like I think share similar feelings about wingets and how they're undercosted or overruled or both. Um, and they didn't really the, the change to them doesn't really change their role or effectiveness. I think you know, I think we didn't have much of a season or a year to make big changes. So I think doing more would have been almost you know people might have been a bit upset that there wasn't a big change but i think doing more would have been potentially worse you know i think everyone's looking forward to like we're coming from clash of kings 2019 where there's like i think that was a really big pack where there's a lot of stuff going on with a lot of formations and new units and stuff like that so i think that was the big shift is like coming from that as the last clash of kings to this being the first one for the new edition it's such a big contrast i think there there were expectations but i think they're you know with the given situation they're probably unfounded or like not very good expectations to actually expect something that of that scale again so i think right now with the current state of the game and how everything is on ub and like you said like Certain things are going to work better in UB than they would on the table in real life. Just the precision you can get with UB makes certain things better. So I think we can't really make big sweeping changes. I think Tom and I are both of the opinion that maybe Revcab didn't need that much of a points increase, but maybe they did. Who knows? <laughs> it does. The, the The undead list in general is so so varied and so good across the board. I think it's. Changing like one or two things isn't going to fix it or break it e- either way. Um,
2: and yeah. we're still seeing that, right, in Call to Arms numbers, right? That that's still one of the most popular armies being played.
3: Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah absolutely, yeah. And, and they're you know a top three one percentage, so it's not it's not like they have over you know nerfed the armor to oblivion or anything. No, um, it's just. For me, the the big beef was if you're going to make things irregular when you have a seventy point unlocking unit. I don't know if that's really the best way to balance things, but you know that's yeah. uh, that's I'm not going to critique DRC too much. I mean, that's a uh, that's pretty small stuff.
3: Mm-hmm. I think what's interesting though with the new stuff is just like how I don't know if it's just the maturing of the edition and people are getting more games in. Or if it's the changes, you know, I know like stalker has got a really cool new special character, but they have seen a pretty big bump in use, maybe or effectiveness in this in Cult Arms so far.
2: Yeah. So speaking yeah. of that, let's 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 touch on the the what we saw in Halpie's Rifts is we saw an introduction of a bunch of new special characters, you know, some new characters, some returning old favorites uh characters from past kings of war lore and i'm I'm curious to to hear what you guys think what i've seen is like it's you have a a bell curve of effectiveness right and that for the most part all these special characters are sort of within that bell curve is that maybe some are on the the bottom of the bell curve and then like you mentioned the night stalker one which i know a lot of people are saying is too good or, or or overpowered or some people have talked a little bit about the one who gives uh, you know, phalanx to sham, uh, verdant u- units. What are your guys' thoughts? Why don't you go first, Tom? What What are your thoughts on the Halpies characters? Any ones that stand out, don't stand out, or, or give us a little bit about what your thoughts on those are.
1: Well, I mean, I think people have kind of figured out which ones are the, the standouts. Um, you know, Namagorak and Ogres giving heal to Ogres when they have uh, big shield siege breakers and no other access to heal is a pretty big deal and that combined with the fact you know he has lightning bolt for early turns when you're not going to be healing he's just really perfect like there's some units that just have exactly the rules that you want them to have and a good points cost and those are the ones that show up in every single list and whether that's good or bad i don't know but I haven't seen an ogre list since Halpy's rift without uh, Noma Groc in it, and I don't expect to for the rest of the edition. Um, some of the other ones are a little bit more situational like Capoka, yeah, he, there's just a specific, very specific list that uh, could be really tough to deal with. but I think that is a extreme skew list where you take like three, two or three tree herders, plus Capoka, you know, uh, and a bunch of forest shamblers, that's going to be... It's a skew list, so some list is just going to destroy without you, it being a challenge, and another, other lists it's not going to do very well against. Um, I think it's good for the game, though, to, to have those kind of skew lists in there just to make things interesting. Um, I don't think it's overpowered or anything. It's just a skew. Um, so I, I, I like Kapoka, and what, it, what he or she or it or whatever it is uh, brings to... The Nature List, um, the, you know the other ones. I could take or leave mostly. Um, I, you know the the Empire Dust one. Um, that one's good because if you're going to take a cursed High Priest with and, uh, Heal and Surge, it's 150 points, and Seven Gray is 155 points. You know, it gets an extra. You know, it gets the basically the same ability that Dwarf Stone Priests have, where after you cast Heal, you can then cast Surge on the unit. So it's like, why wouldn't you spend the five points for that? Um, so I don't again, that's that's probably gonna be in every single Empire dust list that's gonna take a cursed high priest, um, whether that's good or bad, I don't know. But that's the only other one that's like kind of auto include from from my point of view. The other ones are fine. Um, I don't but I don't expect you'll see them in a ton of lists. I could be wrong, but that's my
3: thought. Yeah, I think like the orc one is really interesting because it's an inspiring godspeaker, which is you can have you don't have to worry about adding it in, so you could or you could have two inspiring godspeakers in the list. And then yeah. the yeah. like that's I think that's pretty big. Um then the Ratkin one's interesting, but you lose lightning bolt for the ability for the Bane chant, which is I feel like it's a bit of a it's a high tax um but yeah I agree like the Namagrok and the Night Stalker
2: one are pretty great yeah the night the the what is it I think it's Banshee. Any, any Shura? I don't know I gotta get shaman Dingdong. Ding Dong we need to get Jesse to name her yeah. um the Wailing Shadow I mean, she seems, you know, like they've been talking about, you know, the fact that she's crushing three hits on threes with five attacks that can enthrall you into combat with her Mm -hmm. um, is pretty good. I mean, uh, I think Tom's really great about this, too, of having those individuals or characters or Eric Trobridge's master list was was good at this, too, of, of having the combat characters who skip who skew your averages into your favor. Right. Often we're so close and we were we need just one or two or one to three extra wounds to make a combat mathematically worth doing. Yeah. And these these fast mobile combat characters can be really powerful at doing that. Right.
3: And having CS3 is just like that insurance that what you what hits will, will wound almost anything. Because a lot of times those combats are against defense five or six units where you're like, you just need a couple more points to, to, to flip the combat in your favor.
2: Now, do you guys think that the ones that maybe are, 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 too, are a little bit on the good side and maybe the ones that are a little on the bad side, what are your thoughts as far as tournaments using these? Um, why don't you go first, Alex? Do you think that... The, the balance I guess in the aggregate over all of them is okay or do you think the good ones are too good or where are, you, where are you as a TO where are you on allowing these in tournaments
3: I think I like the the flavor that they bring in general like overall I think yeah Namagrok is probably a little too good for the points um, but that said like the rest of the characters are pretty pretty good and most of them are more just flavor than anything else So I think if you're, they're not going to tip the balance of any list, and I think it's good to have a little bit more variety in lists, especially like, you know, we don't, you don't want to fall into just sameness. So we didn't get any new units in this Clash of Kings, and this is except for these characters. I think that's a good way to kind of just hit a little bit of a a mini refresh. So I think as a TO, I would I would allow them. I think they're, I think they're generally good for the game. There's nothing too out of line with them, if you know, Siegebreaker Horde with Nagmaroc starts, you know, the armies start dominating the meta. Then maybe we can reassess. But I think we're, I think we're okay. And wh- what do you think, Tom?
1: Oh yeah, I-, I would allow them for sure. I mean, with Nagmaroc, he's an auto include, like the very definition of auto include. But then so again is like the idol of Shobak or. You know the Wilt father and Sylvan Ken, or maybe even Nature Now. So it's not that bad of a thing to have auto include characters. Um, you know more. It does mean you have to look at them a little bit more closely, but uh, but Non-Agrock's really the only auto include that I see of these of these new characters. Even the Night Stalker one. I mean, it's really good in a shooting list where you have a couple mind screeches where you can shoot, shoot, shoot with Lightning Bolt, and then pull into combat and finish off whatever you just shot. So that's a really good combo. But it, every Night Soccer list doesn't try to do that thing. So you're not going to take the that character in every single one. So, yeah, I, I would allow it.
2: And, I mean, she is defense 5, but she is only dash 13. You know what I mean? So if you get out of line with her and get her into a combat, I mean, still not... Uh, it is 160 points for a character. It's not cheap. Um, but I'm kind of with you guys, even if maybe one slightly better or whatever. Uh, for me, to, I think the flavor and uh, aspect of it outweighs the super, super, super fine-tuning um, competitive. And I know that the um, the RC ha- are allowing people to decide, but I know that the they were, in creating them, their mind was, let's try to create them, even though... They're fluffy characters. Let's still try to create them within the paradigm of of being balanced as possible. So I'm kind of with you guys uh, uh, of being leaning towards uh, allowing them um, because I think they do bring a lot of interest and flavor. So guys, what do you guys think about... I like to think about, and Kyle Poole and I were on After Dark, and we're talking about often, and I know you you and I, Tom, have talked about the sort of the concept of gatekeeper lists, right? Whereas if you're going to play at a competitive level, you need to either know what you're going to do when you face either list X, list Y, or list Z, or whatever it is. And sometimes that strategy may be, well, if I face this list, this is how I'm going to play it. And then some strategy may be like, well, I hope... That I just, I'm gonna take a combined arms list, and if I just hope I don't face it. That's how I'm gonna face it is by (laughs) hoping that I don't get drawn against it. And if I do, I just know it's gonna be a really tough game. Right now, sort of, and we see this in looking at Forge. uh, I think that you see the sort of gatekeeper and response to gatekeeper is pretty obvious in the top finishes of that event, which were which were Jeff O'Neill and like shooting goblins, and then Nightstalkers, which is anti-shooting. I mean, what do you guys think are the gatekeeper lists now, right, now that we've seen Halpies and we have CTA? Uh, Tom, what are those lists that stand in your mind when you're list building, when you're like, okay, I need to know what I do when I face this, this list?
1: Well, you know, I, I don't think the Goblin list is a, a monster. Like I said, I played it in round two of Call of Arms. Um, we don't have anything like that in, in our meta. Obviously, if uh, we do have a Master's in July, the, the South team will be building lists with the idea that if anyone's going to win Masters from our group, we're going to have to face that list. So we'll make sure our lists have uh, answers to that. Um, but, you know, I think just out of that very specific scenario, or unless if you play in the Southeast, <laughs> uh, you're not going to see something like that. So I think the, the type of army that you are going to see no matter where you're playing that's kind of, I don't know if it's a gatekeeper list, but it's just, I I think it's the meta-defying list, and, you know, it's pretty much the list that I've been playing the undead list, like double Soul Reaver Infantry, double Whites, super, you know, thick chaff with either Revcalf troops or Wraith troops or both, and then just all the other undead nastiness and support. Like, I think Soul Reaver Infantry are the, like, the unit that benefits the most from the third edition roles. And I wrote that in, in an article in Dash 28. Um, it was kind of like the top units uh, in 2020. And I have them at number two. Um, and they could have easily been number one, I think. Because they're just so perfectly calibrated to what uh, what the, the third edition meta, quote unquote, is. Like, shooting is has gone down, except for war and shooting. Um, and so if you have... The shooting you're really seeing is like lightning bolt. Which, if you have cheap Defense Five units, that's kind of like the best counter to lightning bolt. Because even if you have fifteen lightning bolt or something, that's only going to do three or four wounds to Defense Five. And if these units, like Revcat for example, are dash fourteen, you're not going to be killing them until turn three, unless you get pretty lucky. And by that time, the Soul Reavers and the Whites are into you, and they're you know they're getting through you in one hit. And so I, what I've seen, paying attention to tournament results, um, probably closer than, than almost anybody else that I know, um, that, that style of list is, has been at the top of almost every tournament, you know, whether it's in the, last, the top table game last round or not. It hasn't been true for every tournament, but it's always lurking in the top 10 the top five, depending on how big the field is. And so I think that is the list that you have to figure out how you're going to beat that kind of like, I'm just going to run up thick chaff. You can try to kill me. Um, but if you do, I have overwhelming hammers, you know, behind the rev or the wraiths. Um, so you got to figure out how to deal with that. So to me, that's like the defining third edition list. And that's, <laughs> that's a, an admission against interest for sure. But I, I do think it's true. And then all the other lists are how do you respond to that or weird lists like Eric Trowbridge's list that one masters like uh, where he can just pop 15, 15, 17 units in one go with three great words. Um, you know, so all the, the rest of the, or the goblin list where it's like, I can just shoot off everything. Um, so I think the, the weirder lists that are doing well are doing well because they can deal with that type of undead list pretty well and there's other factions that can do pretty much the same thing like varinger with huskarls and Mad sons or like there's a couple of different variations on that but that's like the third edition list to me
2: undead has always been the list of uh, raw efficiency i think in that so many of the units are hyper efficient and then so many of the ways you deal with those units are not so, like the the sometimes how you deal with the 1517 combat unit is you like okay well I'm just going to let you, I'm going to stick a horde in front of it because I know there's no way you can pop me on one go and then I'll counter charge and I'll, you know, I'll try to grind a little bit with you. But vampire infantry is so tough in that there really isn't anything in the game that they can't kill in one combat if you have any sort of, especially if they have an item or something, right? So it becomes a way that it's just really, really, really hard to deal with that unit. I mean, you play Undead, Alex. Anything Tom say, kind of sort of resonate with you?
3: Yeah, absolutely everything. Uh, I think Tom and I have had this discussion a couple times about you know the quad hammer thick chaff uh, archetype. And it's yeah, like, exactly.
1: It's, exactly. Like, it's a it's formula like, almost.
3: It, yeah, yeah it's, and, it, and things and undead do it very well, um, as Tom and I have found out uh, with personal experience. But like, yeah, brother Mark, Berenger, you know, Bacillen, like. There are multiple armies that can do it. It's just they have different ways of supporting it. But that you need to be able to deal with that. You need to be able to either re- redirect or you know kill in you know in time you know on the way in that kind of list. You can't. You have to have a plan for that list. And I think it's not. Yeah, it's not just an undead lists, so you can't just be like okay I, if I if I avoid undead in my meta or in this event I'll be fine like you have to think about it in terms of other lists like they there's lots of different like they have the best like Soul reaper are the best but like you know even just reapers or in fiends or something like that or with salamanders you know tyrants and you know rhinosaurs there's like lots of different armies that can do it. And you have to be able to handle it. And I think Tom's spot on about like the armies that the other army archetypes that are doing well can manage to do it. I think that another one that I would throw out there was the abyssal dwarf shooting list with the triple mortars. And depending on how you want to build it, it's you know, with lesser obsidian golems or decimators. Like that can that can kill 15, 17, and the chaff, like the Revcav chaff or whatever thick chaff that the army is using, in time, if you know, used appropriately and have with good, you know, good dice to get the fives and sixes when you need them on turn one and two. But uh, I think that would be my other. I don't know if it's a gatekeeper list or the response to the gatekeeper list that Tom's talking about. But I think that triple mortar abyssal dwarf list, and that might just be my personal meta that i face regularly um tainting my judgment but i think that is another really strong contender you have to have a a plan for that as well
2: those kind of lists i find that you almost need to face them in the tournament and have them already have played that one game where they hit with everything and just be like okay you've gotten that game out of your out of the way for your tournament, now I get to play you, because that that list can still, in turn one or two, if they hit with all their mortars, I mean, even with the mortar being nerfed, it's still going to pick up knight regiments if, if they hit multiple times, you know? So that's still a list that you can just, through sort of the high-risk, high-reward, just be boned after one yeah. turn of shooting.
3: You can do everything right against that list
1: and, and
2: still, still
3: lose.
1: lose. Yeah, exactly. yeah, I, I mean... The other uh, one that's out there that's really powerful is Defense 6 uh, lists, like and like a Free Dwarf list with a bunch of Earth Elementals or really any list that has Earth Elementals. Um, you know, it, the, that kind of archetypical undead list can deal with that, but it, it is dicey when you're going in, um, you know, against Defense 6, even with it, like 25 attacks and with Crush 2, like the, the Vampire shaft, so that's that's another list that is flourishing. I think in part because it can deal with the that quad hammer formulaic list that we were just talking about. Um, yeah,
3: it slows it down just enough.
1: Yeah, or like a good salamander list. Like all the I don't know if this is uh, just me, but all the good salamander lists that I've seen are, pretty much look the same. Um, but that they can also deal with that undead type list well because the, the ceremonial guard that they have is just like a perfect counter to whites. And, and uh, um,
2: tyrants are so good, right? They get you know, they have some ancients for inspiring defense six, and then they have some tyrants, and then they'll have the big ceremonial guard. And then some of the good characters are a phoenix to help support that. So I think salamanders are really a much improved army for third, wouldn't you say? Yeah. I think they're really solid. Yeah, super
3: yeah. solid yeah
1: there's always like one or two of them lurking around the top tables at the events that I've seen um, and so yeah they, they, they almost do the same thing as what we were just talking about like two tyrants two rhino hordes and some chaff uh, ember sprites super mm-hmm. good chaff now um, so they're almost playing to that formula a little bit and plus they have the shooting from the wakiliadons or uh, to, you know to chip away at that the chaff a little bit um, so they're They're definitely uh, a worthy contender for for top list of the edition, I think.
2: I will say, though, outside of a few things, I mean, I still feel in general the edition feels pretty balanced, and I've seen a lot of really different interesting lists do well. I mean, what are your guys' thoughts now that we've played third edition for, you know, uh, granted a big chunk of that has been during lockdown and UB. Is there a sense you have for the edition as a whole as being... Balance, unbalanced, good, needing work. Uh, what do you think, Tom? Um,
1: yeah, I think it's. I mean, I'm not smart enough to figure that out. <laughs> but for what I've seen, it's pretty balanced. The the thing that I'm interested in seeing is whether some of these changes to unlocking the, um, you know, the 18 inch Pierce one shooting or like the Glade stalkers, the 24 inch bow shots. What, what effect that'll have? Because it's almost like I was talking with Keith Randall and, he, and about the play Stalker units being unlocking now. And I know I've watched him play a couple games with uh, a new, newly worked elf list that includes those. And he's like, you know, the, the wolves are back in Yellowstone, somewhat, uh, so to speak. You know, if you think about undead in Second Edition, why, why, why is everybody complaining about them in Third Edition when really they are the exact same, with some exception in 3rd edition, and one, one of their toughest matchups was always Elves, who would just shoot them so hard coming up the table, because you know, they are shambling units, mostly in the Undead, like the the like the Red Cav and the Whites and whatever, so it's going to take them at least two turns to get up the board, um, and Elves can shoot you up pretty good, or at least they could, so I'm interested to see whether that change is going to bring Elves back in, into the, the top meta And maybe beat down the undead a little bit. So I I don't know. That's that's one thing I'm interested
3: in seeing playing out. Yeah, I think it's interesting you mentioned that because I think the the 18-inch Pierce one shooting unlocking now, I think that does open up another can of worms too. Like that's just for allies or not even allies. Like I think that makes a big difference. I think that's something that was that medium non-war engine shooting was something that was missing in the first year of third edition so it'll take some time for people to figure out the optimal mix but i think that will be a, a notable change going forward
2: and i think there's no there's no real finish line when it comes to game balance right because you're always tweaking you're always turning you're always moving up one lever, which moves down another lever, which then moves up a third lever in a completely different room that you never even knew was there. So I think it's one of those things, right, that you're always working towards, but you never quite achieve. So again, it's just always this mix, this this pot that's bubbling and churning and adding ingredients and taking ingredients. So. You know, I'm curious in the 18-inch shooting, too, and that's something that I talked with Elliot when we were talking about the changes, was I think that's really interesting. I'm curious to see what Keith does with the Glade Starkers because Tom's exactly right. You know, I, I in one of my infamous, infamous uh, four games of Friday night prep at my first Masters, I played Keith uh, with my undead, and he just wrecked my face. And it's the same thing where it's like I'm moving up as fast as I can with my 15-17 hammers, but you've shot them enough that by the time I get close, you then charge me with your dracons and they're dead. That, that's like a really effective style to deal with undead. Mm-hmm. So it is interesting how when one thing maybe doesn't change, but one of the tools used to keep it in line does change, you see how it becomes prominent. But I mean, in the, in the end, even looking at the, 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 the list of call to arms, the armies change, but often the names stay the same, right? Whereas it still takes good players to pilot armies, even if those armies are better in a certain meta, it still takes player skill to play them correctly. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think something. Still, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go for it.
3: I think just so, something I was thinking about this past week. About I was just talking uh, about just general unit power and like how good certain units were and how good certain lists were. But I think with UB being the predominant place a lot of people are playing it's easy to s- iterate through a list and like oh play a couple games that didn't work change the list move forward whereas like if you're preparing for a tournament you you're there's a lot more friction to list changes because you're painting and assembling and buying things so i think people spend a bit more time playing certain lists and the units and army builds that are immediately effective And, you know, are not maybe necessarily the most effective, like a hard to use army that takes a lot of practice could actually be much more effective in the long run. But it takes a lot more practice to get there, which with UB being the way we're playing, people may not have the patience to delve that deep into the army. That's just a theory I have right now. You,
2: know, you <laughs> make a really really interesting point and this is something Tom and I have talked about often in that we both like try to tell each other the next time I go to Masters is going to be with a list that I've played more than once. <laughs> <I've played laughs> more than twice.
3: Yeah. Or you know Yeah. Pull... and other <laughs> lies I've told myself.
2: Exactly. Are you pulled the secret ch- chat cave Eric uh, way of I'm going to play this army 500 times before Master so that I know how it works in every possible scenario and you see he crushes people and I mean he's a great player as it is but I mean there's something to be said about like you like you mentioned playing armies and really learning stress testing them and I think that there is a a, a thing in UB to try a new army and if you don't just crush your opponent be like oh this army must suck I'm going to make something else
3: yeah I think it's just like that patience that we have with our armies like up until this year was like, you're building it. It's a project, like you're invested. So you feel like you have to make it work and you try to make it work and you, you really like put effort into figuring it out and you're you're playing it every Friday night with your buddies and stuff like that. But like with UB, it's like, it's, it's, it's very easy just to be like, well, I'm just going to swap out 800 points of my army tonight because last night it didn't work quite well, well enough for me to keep it.
1: Yeah, well, and one thing, too, I think, with us being, you know, even though we haven't been playing as many games, maybe locally, I think as a community this year, we're way more connected with each other, you know, both at least in the in North America as well as across the world. And so ideas get transferred more quickly, which makes it seem like we figured things out. Um, you know, so I think some of the fatigue, maybe Alex, you felt and, and we've discussed is, you know, part, partly from you and I and Jeremy too, just being some of the only people that are really heavily invested in playing um, because we've been we're willing to play online and join some of these these online tournaments and talk about things and think about things. Um, you know, I think a lot of people are going to be coming to the game once these restrictions are lifted, and it's going to be completely fresh to them, and maybe they'll have fresh ideas as well. We, uh, we think we figured things out, but maybe, maybe not.
3: Yeah, it's like a, the cross-pollination is like a double-edged sword a little bit.
2: Yeah. And there's just there's there's just a lot of great players who don't play on UB, right? And that's the thing that, like, in the past, we've had that dynamic of call-to-arm standings and what country's done what, and then there's the, well, well no country played in that there tournament. But, you know, but there's, <laughs> there's besides all that, there's some truth, right? Is some of the better players... In certain areas, don't play on UB. They're playing in their, you know, their murder basement or they're playing in their like tire weightlifting area or flipping tires or doing whatever. (laughs) Um, You know what I mean? So that. Even though that's said sort of in a tongue in cheek, you know, we're America and we're still the best. I mean, there is some truth in that not all the great players play on U B. So that's gonna be interesting too, right? When we come back and we see those players who knows what they've been working on in their in their uh, laboratories, right? Yeah, you know yeah.
3: they've been playing. Like they they just haven't been taking part in like the big tournaments. Like their their brains are working away on the game it, just like ours, just in a slightly different context.
1: Yeah, that's, no, that's a really great point, Jeremy. Like, I, I feel somewhat overexposed with how much, like, I've been posting and being on podcasts and running call arms and whatever. It's like people know what I think and my, what my opinions are, um, but th- that's a really good point. Like, people who aren't as connected or as active on Facebook and some of the online stuff, uh, it'll be interesting to see what they've been working on in their MAD laboratories. Like, for example, Brad McKay my, in my uh, region. He was like this close to taking Ratkin slaves to masters to defend his master's title uh, this past February. It's like that's he is a super interesting list for that. And people think that's the worst list, uh, you know, of them all. So, yeah, just to say I I agree 100 percent with that.
2: Yeah. And I it's still like, I still I still stand by the idea that there's there's lots of really amazing players who just never go to tournaments. You know what I mean? And maybe the one time they do go to a tournament you never heard of them, but they're really great. So I don't think that that in that UB has been the sort of focus for it that we could say that only only the real work of meta Only the werewolf of creating lists is happening within the sphere of UB games that we just got to be aware and cognizant of the fact that there's probably satellites in orbit of that UB space that are still working, still developing, still building. And uh, like we said, it's going to be interesting when those are sort of brought back into the fold as we begin to coalesce our uh, uh, communities more and more. Hopefully, as we said, by next summer and next year where we're playing in person together again
1: yeah absolutely
3: agreed
2: uh, well awesome any um any in anything else any sort of uh final thoughts you know definitely you guys listening in the audience if you sort of like this sort of style episode where we do a little snapshot review a little bit more this episode has been a little bit more round table free form just sort of conversation back and forth if you liked it definitely let us know on the facebook page uh tom and i have talked about having him on semi regularly and alex like to do these sort of like meta breakdowns or just sort of kind of like what's happening in the 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 tournament world not so much what's happening in in in-person tournaments but just in the competitive game scene like what are people bringing so if you like it it's this sort of thing definitely let us know and we haven't been able to really do as much list builder studio because usually list builder studio is sort of revolved around a a, a list that wins an event and then we bring that person on and we talk to them about their list and their thinking and kind of with the the, the not as that much happening and getting a little bit of that through through dash 28 live we haven't really done a lot of list builders but uh, definitely let us know um, if you like this list. And also uh, Alex we've been talking a little bit about uh, what our next army review and we've had a lot of some some requests for kingdoms of men
3: Oh yeah, so for Kings of Men, I think we're going to look, be looking to record that in the new year. I think we're going to have. I think it's one of the armies that people. They they it's it's got a lot great depth and it's kind of average ish, but it has a lot a lot to offer. And it's one of those that kind of ties into what I was mentioning earlier earlier about practice and getting the most out of it because there's so much in it. So I think I think it'll, it'll generate a lot of interesting discussion. I think we'll have some some good insights into that.
2: Yeah, and we're going to have, uh, looks like probably Brinton will come on and be a guest with us. Uh, he has uh, played against his Kingdom of Men many a time, and he's very adept and good at that army. Um, if anyone else knows uh, uh, Kingdoms of Men players that they played against or would love to hear from, let us know. And then also, too, always continue. Usually our army reviews are based by what we're into, but also audience response. So if there's a new army that you're starting that we haven't done an army review for, and you'd like us to do it, definitely. Uh, let us know. Well, awesome, fellas. Uh, I really want to thank you for coming on in the show. And then just real quickly before we we get, since I have two amazing competitive minds, I want to touch. <laughs> I want to touch very briefly on. We did have a recent FAQ come out, uh, and I want to <laughs> do the like talk to me like I'm six. So i am am a I'm a six year old. Uh, so explain to me, and I'm a six year old who's really upset because Jeremy just made me cry because I just lost him in a game. One more childhood. one more child, one more person I've brought to tears in my life. But will you guys, uh, this is just for our audience. I know you guys follow all the, the streams and chats, whatever. Can you just give me like, can we just touch base really quickly on, on the takeaways for what the latest fac has done as far as the withdrawal movement changes um, seems to me, basically, I'll kind of tell you guys how I understand it. You can let me know if I'm on the right page. Basically, the main change is if you're engaged with a unit and you give a withdraw order, which allows you to move an inch back, then when you issue a normal move order, you're no longer to, able to come within an inch of that unit, even if you end outside of an inch, unless you're doing a charge. So no more withdrawing, pivoting, moving out of the one inch, and then getting surged into something else, that would no longer be a legal move. Is that basically the gist? Am I getting it right?
1: Yeah, so it, it said that when you're withdrawing, you're no longer considered to be disengaging as well um, after you've completed your withdrawal move. So before, if, you were di- if you're disengaging, you could come within an inch of, um, I believe it was the the unit you were engaged with. And so what you could do is, if you're like large infantry, for example, uh, especially shambling large infantry, and somebody charges you, you could withdraw uh, up to an inch. Then you could pivot, um, and your pivot is uh, because you're longer than you are deep. That's less than an inch, so you could pivot and then move. At least if if you were speed six or more, you could move out and your move within. outside of an inch of the unit that had just, you were just engaged with, and then get surged, for example. That was the, the thing I did with White's. Uh, I saw Dustin Howard do it. He did it to me at Dojo GT with uh, Ice Elementals. And so it was, they, they tried to close that loophole where now that you're no longer considered to be disengaging after your withdrawal move, you can't come within an inch of the, uh, of the unit you were just engaged with again. And so, you know, this whole withdraw and disengage stuff, I think it's – part of it is the terms aren't very descriptive, um, and it it causes some confusion. I'm actually thinking about writing a Dash 28 article just like where are we now after the FAQ and just kind of getting to to the whole history of like withdrawing and disengaging. Yeah, Yeah.
2: you should do that.
1: Yeah, I'm just going to find the time to do that. But maybe over Christmas I'll I'll have the time because – it is like the the part of the game that has caused the most heartburn at least rules wise and a lot of even to where people are like let's go back to second edition you know it was so much easier which is just like no the third edition it is light le- years better than but it is confusing and so um,
2: and like, i think the, the the other big change right that moving sideways now is okay right whereas before if you had to move an end further away you couldn't just go sideways right because sideways was still the same distance but now they're saying that that's okay
1: yeah that's a little more situational but yeah you can do that yes. now. It, it was it was some people were playing it like you could already do that but the rules were a little unclear so they just said yeah you can do that
2: okay awesome And I mean, we're not going super in depth. I just wanted to, you know, since I had these two great minds on here to just do a little because I know that that whenever a fact comes out, it's like fact day and it's the burning Elmo emoji, you know, where Elmo has got his hands in the sky and everything's burning everything down. That's what happens on when a a new fact comes out always. So just doing our part to keep everyone calm and cuddly. So
3: (laughs) I defer to the lawyer in these situations.
2: Smart, smart
3: yeah i'm weird I actually like talking about that stuff
1: so uh-huh.
2: well i want to thank alex uh, uh and tom again for coming on the show um it's always great to have um uh, nice balanced uh calm minds talk about competitive things and again like i said if you enjoyed this episode let us know we'll uh we can get a series going or have more episodes like this in the future um any other final thoughts fellas
3: i uh, just go back to the the first point that we're talking about is like just stay connected with your community i know it's like going into the holidays and you know it's stressful but just you know make sure you're staying connected with the people in your local community your game store everybody just keep everything going forward and being positive and being awesome
1: yeah uh for me call call of arms is rolling on round four is going to start uh today the map that we have for round <laughs> four is pretty interesting. Um, might might cause some controversy. We'll see, but uh, it's, you're definitely gonna have to think about it. And so, if you're curious, if you're not playing, and you're curious, you can follow along. There's a there's a great website that was created by uh, Mark Cunningham and maybe some other people that I can't remember. Um, and it has all you know the current rankings and what players have been taking. So, if you're curious to follow along, you should check that out and go to the. Universal Battle to Facebook page, and uh, there's a sticky on top with a link to that website, so easy to find.
2: Okay, well, awesome, fellas. Um, thanks again, and uh, stay tuned to Countercharge. We got a bunch of great stuff coming through the pipeline. Um, also, uh, I probably won't have an episode coming out till Christmas, so happy holidays to everyone. Um, stay kind to each other. Also, we'll be doing our a year-end review episode we do each year where we'll have the entire host team. So we'll have um, Alex and Steve and Crozier and Rob, myself, and um, Mark. We'll have the whole uh, team on, and we'll do sort of a year in review episode. So stay tuned for that. And then also we have uh, a really great episode plan coming up next year. We're going to be hitting our 500th episode which is really just fantastic, a really big milestone. So we hope to have a lot of community engagement and listener involvement in that episode. So we'll be letting you guys know how to contribute to that as we get closer. So we still have a, 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 a fair amount of episodes to get before that, but I just want to put it in your guys' sort of space, get it in your minds that we are going to be doing something fun and exciting for uh, our 500s episode. So hope you guys take part in that and contribute. And we'll be getting you more information on that shortly. So in the meantime, thanks for listening. And remember to always keep counter charging for listening.
0: And we'll see you next time on Countercharge. Please let us know what you thought of the show by emailing us at counter podcast at gmail.com on Twitter at countercharge 15